Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. We are medically speaking again this week, so thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have a really great topic um, tonight. We are talking about sleep. Sleep, something we all need, something we all don't get enough of. We're going to be talking about sleep because of the change of the seasons, because of the kids going back to school, and so many, so many issues that all of us have with sleep. And I have with me tonight, Dr. Greg Kaladner. Hi, Doc. Hi, Robin. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm great. You know how much it's... I love being on the radio. Yeah, I not not for anything, but I, I tempted him a few times on radio. He goes, radio, radio, whoever listens to radio. I said, we all do, especially WATR, yes. which is the best station around. And we are on podcast now. I want to remind everybody that now so that you can find us on iTunes under Medically Speaking. So if you don't get all the information tonight, they could always re-listen to it. Right on, their, right on their phones, right on their little iPad. So, you know, we are so happy to have you here. So Dr. Kalander is a pulmonologist, and he's with the Franklin Medical Group, which is part of St. Mary's Hospital. And just a little bit of doc- about Dr. Kalander, because I think that your resume is a tad bit impressive, if I don't say so myself. Um, you are an undergraduate of Yale. Correct? That's correct. And you went to medical school at John Hopkins. That's correct. And you did your residency at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And you also did a fellowship in New York Presbyterian. Correct. And you are a pulmonologist. And what led you to be a pulmonologist? The thing that interested me during training was the physiology that, which relates to sleep as well, is that we always have to explain what's going on with the patient. Pulmonologists are sort of trained that they have to review the data and create a framework, a scientific framework for why something happens. And so that's why it was always interesting to me. That's that's you know, that's interesting to me too. You know, pulmonology is one of those fields I think that, you know, we we don't associate with sleep but we associate with, you know, someone that's got maybe lung cancer, someone that's got COPD or, you know, someone that has those other types of lung diseases that, you know, would lead you in the direction of a pulmonologist, but not sleep. So you specialize in sleep and sleep disorders. That's correct. And so what led you to do that? What led you down that road with your pulmonologist? Well, my wife would like to say that she wanted me to go into sleep because I was much better at cocktail parties than uh, doing pulmonology because everybody has a sleep experience. Not right. everybody has a breathing disorder or a problem breathing, but everybody sleeps. Right. I also feel that since I take care of one third of your, your life, I should have a third of the space in the hospital. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. But, we're gonna, we've already started creating that space, which we're going to talk about later on. But seriously, uh, when you go back to it, I actually took a class in college uh, with a sleep researcher, not knowing that I would go into this. And he actually is Dr. Mark Rosekind. He's now head of the National Transportation Safety Board involved in sleep and safety. But it was it's caught my interest during uh, college, and I had some time during fellowship to study sleep, and it's it's really interesting. Everybody has a personal story. I get to ask questions of patients as a doctor that nobody else in the medical field asks patients. I, it's amazing how many doctors don't know their own patients' professions or schedule or yeah. lifestyle. So it's it's always interesting and and really. Every day is different for me. And and it affects us in so many different ways, but it really has an effect on our bodies in so many different ways, very unique ways, you know, from children, which we're going to talk about, you know, to, you know, people that have sleep apnea to women who are going through perimenopause. And there's so many different aspects that sleep affects. And you do. You take that time with patients to understand their sleep patterns because fixing a sleep pattern can make someone much healthier. That's correct. Uh, we know that sleep is a natural biologic process, but it's also a passive process in that we need it for immune function. We need it for cognitive function. We need it for pain control. We need it for cardiopulmonary health. But at the same time, you can't will yourself to sleep. You can will yourself to exercise. You can will yourself to eat correctly. Other problems that we all struggle with on a (laughs) daily basis. But 
you can't will yourself to sleep. Sleep is a passive process where you have to have the absence of, of thought, but it's a, it's two states of consciousness, right. uh, both dreaming sleep and non-dreaming sleep, which we call REM and non-REM, but it's very important to our overall health. I. You know, I wanted to go down a pattern tonight of talking about different pieces. You know, I definitely wanted to focus on the fact Mm -hmm. of children going back to school. And I kind of want to look a little bit at the time change and how those small things, um, especially the time change, how those small things really do affect our our sleep. But, you know, we as a society, how I look at it is we as a society, we, we feel like we are wasting time if we're sleeping. We feel like we're wasting time, I think, especially in the Northeast. We tend to be in overdrive way too much and we feel guilty if we're sitting down and resting you know and that's unfortunate because our body needs it to recharge that's correct there's a difference between sleeping and weakness right you know it's it's sort of been historically that way uh, whether it's in the military whether it's in medical residency where i was when i was training approximately 20 years ago it was thought to be you were thought to be less of a of a soldier of the medical profession if you were if fatigue if you were tired yeah if fatigue uh, bothered you right. so much and and you know at least the the both in the military and in training that's that's changed and it has to be people have to realize that sleep is a necessary biologic function it's also hard because i can tell you if you need if you have low blood count or you have high cholesterol or your one of your electrolytes is abnormal from a blood test, I can't tell you or me or another person how much sleep they get by any kind of testing right. other than how they react to sleep deprivation. Right. So it's a little bit harder to judge for people. Right. For children, it's the same thing in that we know now that we have good guidelines per age group, but just like adults, there's a little bit of variation among normals as far as what they need. In any patient, whether it's a child or an adult, what they need is enough so that they can most of the time wake up spontaneously, that they shouldn't need an alarm clock to do that, and that there shouldn't be a need for sleep in a sedentary situation, that if you take a... short to intermediate car ride or you sit down on the couch in the afternoon, you shouldn't have the tendency to fall asleep to fall if you've asleep. gotten enough sleep. So really, so then you know, if your body's recharged enough, you should be able to rest without that feeling that mm-hmm. I do need to fall asleep. So that's interesting. So let's, we're on, you know, you started with the children. Let's 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 hit on that because we are going back to school. Um, school started this week as we all well know because I'm sure that we all ran into the school buses and our crazy ride into work every morning. And by the way, if you do have questions for doctor, we are live. So 203-757-1320, we definitely Welcome, welcome your calls. So with kids, parents are getting their kids back to school. During the summer months, we let the kids stay up later. And everybody's like, well, you know, week before school, I try to get the kids to go to bed early, try to get them in the pattern. But how how do we get the kids back in a pattern when it's still still a little bit light? I mean, it's getting dark at night, but, you know, before 8 o'clock, it's still a little bit lighter. How do we get the kids to calm down? Well, that's part of the perception about light and ages and and stages of sleep that's a little bit complicated but we have to think of the fact that there's both looking at the specific age group so if you think about it elementary school middle school and high school you can sort of break it up okay in that setting and most elementary school children are because they're pre-adolescent, they have a very regular sleep pattern. So most of the time, hmm. a healthy elementary school child who's more tired, it's because of not a realization that they really do need more sleep than you're getting right. them. I don't, I, I don't know if that came out correctly, but really, when you look at the sleep requirements, most elementary school children need... 10 or 11 hours of sleep, depending on the age group. There's a great graphic on 
the website of the American Association of Sleep Medicine, which is sleepeducation.org. That's the website for education of, of parents and Oh, that's educators. Sleepeducation.org. Sleepeducation.org. And it's, so it's a non-sponsored. It's not something that's commercially uh, biased. It's, right. it's, it's the academic website for the general public, which has information on, on sleep. And it has a graphic, if you, if you find it on the website, which we may be able to put um, on our yeah, website we will. later. We're going to share. That's the one you shared that, with me. We correct. will share that on our website. That has a, uh, an infographic for um, the requirements for, for, for sleep. Ages. So elementary school, we're, we're talking in general 10 to 11 hours, depending on uh, the time. And what you, what you often see is that parents of elementary school children, they're the ones trying to get late sleep on the weekends, and right. the kids are up the at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so that's the sort of the elementary school trend. So the goal with elementary school is enforcing bedtime, because they're going to get up at a specific time. It's making sure and that their bedtime is, is, is consistent, and they have a good bedtime routine. And they tend to listen to you more at that Correct. age, right? And, you, you know, the other them. thing is, is devices, which we'll get into on the older children, but you, most elementary Elementary school children shouldn't feel the need for having devices at night. And right. what I mean by devices, of course, is, is iPhones, iPads, is iPhones, Android, you know, cell phones, iPads, TVs, and games, mm. basically, because they all uh, add light. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Middle school students are in a transition, just like most things, that, that they're transitioning from a elementary school. Uh, stable sleep cycle into adolescence. And so you have the tendency to stay up later and have it be more difficult for you to get up in the, in in the, the morning. morning. But the problem is, is it's not the bedtime that's the, that's the issue. It's the wake time. Because what happens is there's this cycle of what I like to call adolescent uh, sleep hygiene where there's a reduction in overall sleep during the week, then the child makes it up on the weekend and gives themselves social jet lag, uh-huh. which I like to say. So <laughs> let's, if you think about it, and it, it, it's it's a little harder to do uh, radio-wise, but so let's say I'm getting up at seven o'clock every morning for, for my job, right? okay? And I am going to sleep as an adult seven to eight hours, so 11 p.m., let's say, and now I sleep late till 10 or 11 in the morning. Well, now I'm only up for 12 hours on Sunday night when I need to get into bed early enough to wake up. Right. And I might not be tired enough. Even if I'm overall sleep deprived, I might not be tired enough. Or it's the equivalent of my flying to the West Coast or Hawaii or Alaska in that I'm not ready to go to sleep yet. So they get into this back and forth pattern and they can actually get into a pattern where the normal is the weekend time. So they're sleeping late is the more common thing. And then they get up late for school and all these problems. So to me, what it sounds like bringing it back to the center is it's really pattern and routine. Correct. So creating that routine based on the need of that age group for sleep right. is what you should try to do as a parent. Right. The guidelines are to keep the wake time during the school year on on a school day at the same time right. to think about ways to get light. That's very hard in Connecticut for most of the school year. Right. And there are artificial light boxes that are available. Basically, what they are is things about tablet-sized mm-hmm. LED light boxes that used to be very expensive. They're now commercially available for about 50 to $60, where a child can eat breakfast in front of this light and it can actually help them get adjusted to Daytime. morning time to wake up, and it helps. You know, we see the, isn't that interesting. We see the teenagers, and what are they doing at the bus stop in the They're winter? Sleep, their eyes are closed. And not only are their eyes are closed, or they've got their uh, hoodie. Yeah, you know, this is New England. Every <laughs> teenager wears a hoodie, and they're and they're over their head. They're they're huddled yeah. over their head. That's so it's true because of the light. Right. You know, and and so it's a problem. I mean, it's wow. not. It's we've tried 
as a as a community and as uh, a region of the country to try to uh, make school time later, and there are lots of social reasons, and that can be a whole different program. Is to is to whether right. school time is is effective or not. Right. But we have to deal with the cards that we're dealt right now. Right. Right. So so, but keeping and then on the weekends or on vacation, try to make the wake time no more than one to two hours after the normal, the normal. school day. So the wake adjustment's time. a little easier. Yeah. So and. And that's during the school year. Vacation maybe a little bit more. If a child has to stay up late for a party or an event or something like that, you don't want them in middle school or high school stay, uh, sleeping super late right. because then you get that jet lag. It's okay for a child that's like that to take a nap if they need to in so the afternoon. What it sounds like to me, too, is, is our body is constantly trying to adjust on what we lost. Right. Excuse me. So right. that's that's you know your body knows what it needs, so it's trying to adjust based on what they haven't gotten in, and so now they're they're putting themselves in a deficit already that's, for the upcoming. That's really what's happened, and so you wow. uh, you know there are some students who it's a it's such a problem that during the summer we actually manipulate their sleep schedule. We actually give them a 26 or 27 hour day. Wow. So we were talking about adolescents that during the summer are staying up till 3, 4, 5 in the morning because they have no responsibility and, and that's where their brain is, is um, adjusted to. We actually tell them for about a week or two to stay up two hours later every day and sort of cycle it around. That way they're never getting less sleep than they need on a specific night. Right. But they're moving the clock forward. Moving the clock forward. So, and we're going to get to that because that's going to be happening. Yeah. We're going to be losing an hour of sleep pretty soon. No, you're, 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 you have it back. Fall back. You have it back. That's right. Fall back. We're going to be gaining. Spring ahead. So my pet peeve as, as a sleep doctor is that it's daylight saving time. Daylight saving. So, so it, there's no plural. But that it's means, not a bank account. But that but that means I'm going to be tired at five o'clock at night. Because well, that's it's what be right. Dark. But it but as you as you know, usually for most people, it's easier to stay up an hour later, right, than to uh, get up an hour. Oh yeah, earlier. that's the worst. You no, just but, can't get up an hour. But early. the issue is really what happens at the bus stop and and. At the time you go to work, the 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 morning light. You know, there's been a lot of press about what should happen with is daylight saving time a good thing. I just saw something in the news. I don't know how accurate this is, and I don't know. You know, with um, you know online news, we never know. But <laughs> there was even a, a proposal for Massachusetts to change time zones. They were actually talking about really? it because they were so concerned about it getting dark at. Sunset at it's, four o'clock in it's November. It's so tough, and you're to which I never seem to get that back. It takes right. a while to get it back. It just seems like just right. when you're getting adjusted, you're changing that time that hour again. Correct. You know, which is definitely another piece I wanted to talk about. Right. Tonight. For more for, serious jet lags, there are, uh, jet lag for for instance international travel and things. There are some apps that try to have you adjust to light light exposure. It's complicated. It's a little. You sort of have to explain it graphically to sort of make it make it work. Make but, it work. Not on radio, but, right? The best thing to do, no, it just it just it doesn't it doesn't translate it doesn't translate very well. Um, but the best thing is to try to adapt a few days beforehand. Right, change before your gonna, change your schedule. I was going to talk to you about beforehand. that because I mean we we just talk about the hour, but you know you did you had you said the word jet lag, which made me think I do have a I have a few people in my family who do travel and they travel overseas and you know for business and they're only doing it for two or three days and then they have to come back and they have to be on point and then it seems like when they do have that weekend, they are just so thrown off. Right. I don't know if they should be sleeping or they So should. there are, there are two aspects of that. Number one is the difficulty of sleeping on a plane if you're doing an overnight flight. Right. That um, most people who travel in economy, uh, it's very hard to get a reasonable sleep based on the size of seats, seats nowadays. And... So there, you're already sleep deprived. The best way, whether you're doing jet lag or whether you're a shift worker, is to stay consistent internally mm. with the sleep. So if you're going to the West Coast, getting up earlier 
and going to bed earlier would be the right thing to do. It's often not practical based on what we want to do. I mean, if we're going for reg- recreation, we certainly don't want to go to sleep at no, it's six, six or seven o'clock at right. night. Right. But that's the that's the best way. Um, Keep your potty adjusted to the correct. to the time zone that you're used to. Correct. That, oh my goodness. Correct. And all the things that we tend to do on vacation. You know, drink more water, drink less alcohol, try to c- cut down on the caffeine a little bit while you're traveling or so you're that traveling, you yeah. uh, don't stimulate yourself as much. Try to avoid sleeping pills on planes and things like that because they can um, really affect your um, mental state when you're flying and things wow. like that. Especially people should, sometimes you hear stories of, of people getting their friends medication, which of course is never advised, but and they take a sleeping yeah. pill on the plane yeah. and then they go bonkers or something I mean, something it's so like true. That. that is so true though. But I mean, especially if you're desperate, you say, oh, I need, I need to right. take something so I can get some sleep. Right. You know, it's funny. There's so, you, there's so much, there's so much information about sleep and there's so many different pieces and topics we started with children we went to the time zone we went to flying but you know what it's okay because there's so much information that you want to get out there we want people to understand it's a huge study sleep is a big part of who we are it's we spend you know half of our life sleeping and how that sleep is done and how we do it and why we do what we do is one of the reasons why we're here tonight. Um, I think we'll take a quick break. But when we do come back, I want to talk quickly about um, devices with children before we totally get off that topic about how that really does affect our kids and some of the things that we can do to tone that down. And then we'll talk more about sleep apnea. Correct. We'll be right back. Great. everyone robin sills from saint mary's hospital medically speaking and our topic tonight is sleep sleep disturbances sleep apnea and all types all types of sleep information that we're giving out tonight we're talking a lot about sleep just based on the fact that uh, the kids are going back to school we talked about kids going back to school and that that definite need for the kids to sleep and all those pattern changes that happen over the summer and we are here tonight talking about sleep with pulmonologist dr greg kaladner hi doc 
Hi, Robin. Welcome back. Thanks. We are Dr. Kaladner is a pulmonologist with the Franklin Medical Group, which is part of St. Mary's Hospital, and his specialty is sleep medicine. And he is a busy guy. We have him at a bunch of different locations. Uh, we have our sleep lab out in Wilkett. We have one out in Naugatuck, and now his offices, um, his main office is in Waterbury in the Scoville Medical Building, and we're building a brand new sleep center there on Scoville Street, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we went to the break, we were talking about children and kids going back to school. We drifted to the time change and then went on an airplane. So we kind of went a little over the place, but that's okay. There's so much information. And if you have any questions for uh, Dr. Kaladner or myself, please don't hesitate to call in 203-757-1320. So one quick revisit back to kids because you mentioned devices. And I think that before we go on to um, other parts of our, our topic tonight, I want to make sure we address that because that is a big deal. You always see kids on devices and, you know, they may be half asleep at the bus stop in their hoodie over their head trying to block out light, but they got the phone in their face. Correct. They got the phone in their face or on their ear or they, you know, when they're home, they grab the iPad. I don't know if kids use iPads as much, much as us adults. I think kids are still just using their phones and living off of their phones. But what do you what do you recommend? Well, I think there's a lot of aspects to this. And again, this can be a whole program in itself. But mm-hmm. I think there's different kinds of devices. So the physiology behind why devices are a problem is that the light from these devices when they're used close up and the phone is the worst because you have it as close as you can. Mm. A TV in a bedroom is a bad thing. He just told me that. Don't listen. (laughs) But it's not not as, as light polluting as a device is because it's usually farther away. People right. usually don't have their TV right. right next to their bed. They usually have it on the other side of the room. There are things you can do to turn down the brightness if you have to have a TV on for whatever reason. But I don't have a TV in my bedroom at home. My daughter doesn't either. We we set an example that way, but we're not as good with our devices. Right. Um, our family is a little bit device addicted like many families are. Uh, I think the way to approach this is, number one, when children are at the age where they're learning about devices, is setting responsibilities and limits with the timing. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the cell phone companies now will have a program that is very inexpensive, which will tell the parents when a child is either had a text message or a picture message after a certain time. And letting the child know that is the best thing. Saying, I'm not reading your text, whether you are or not, that's another story. But saying... (laughs) Different topic. Correct. But saying, I know that you used your phone late last night, and that's not okay, and you'll lose privileges if you do, and you can set those limits and things like that. I know that the Apple phones, and I'm sure there are apps for the Android phones as well, have blue light filters, uh, which physiologically is because the blue spectrum of the light, really around what the physicists will like to say about 470 nanometers of wavelength of light, wow. is the most stimulating for receptors on our retina that create light pathways. We actually know that every cell in our body has genes that respond to high-intensity light. And we know a lot about the pathways. We know about why the genetics of some people tend to be night owls versus morning larks because of certain genetics. But when you go back to it, it's really the blue light. So putting those filters on at night can sometimes help. But really trying to limit the device from your bedside is the best way. Just like we talk with an insomniac about not having a visible alarm clock so they're not watching the clock, one of the great things about the device is unless you need it for an emergency reason, put it in a place where you actually have to get up and go Go out of bed to go get it because that you're less likely to just impulsively grab it that way. Just like a clock, if you really need to watch a clock, don't have the time facing you. You might need the alarm to get up, but have it so it's not facing you. And uh, and what and what you said before we watching. before we uh, came back on, you said and have it only set to thirteen twenty. 
Correct. Right? Correct. Only AM radio, only Correct. 1320, right? The knob broken off. Exactly. No knobs. I know that. You know, we're talking a lot about the light on the devices, you know, and honestly, light does wake you. Correct. It definitely wakes you. So the last couple of mornings, I don't know if anyone out there has noticed that, but it's been darker. It's already starting We're to change. Transition. We're in that transition form, and I'm finding I, I'm sleeping well. And right. I normally the light wakes me up, and I don't need my alarm. But I said to my husband, I said, I think we're going to have to turn the alarm back on because I'm sleeping past when I want to get up. And so, you know, now I'm not really nudging myself until a half hour right. later than I really want to well, get up. And that's why, I mean, for me, next week, my wake up light comes out of, right. the, of, the, okay. of the closet. I use it from September to around the time that um, it gets light in the spring, you know, yep. March or April, depending yep. on the, the year. And I don't necessarily have time to use it every day if I have medical things going on that right. need me to get in early. But I try to uh, sit for 10 or 15 minutes and use it. It's a, it's a little bit harsh the first couple of days. That is it I really it. bright? It's very bright. It's supposed to be bright. Well, the reason is, is that Human beings have been around for a long time, and evolution doesn't move as fast as electric lights have. We've only been in electric lights for about 150 years, and we know that the brain responds only to high-intensity light and very low light. Light like firelight, like cave light, because wow. that's how hum- humans stayed outside all day, and then they were inside all night. Right. There was no right. difference. Our brain doesn't respond to indoor light. It's like a neutral position. It's not off and it's not on. And that's why you have problems when we're in the winter, because our brain is not understanding that we should be awake or not. Right. The other thing that's important is body temperature and keeping the bedroom cooler than yeah. you might be used to may help get you to sleep. Even if you have to put another blanket on, right. it actually helps the body temperature. I'm so temperature glad you're saying this be because we cold. have the central on, but I also sleep with my ceiling fan every night, my poor husband. But that's for other reasons. <laughs> As we get older, women. But, you know, that's so true. When it's cooler, it's better. And when you have the heat turned way up in the wintertime, it's harder to breathe. Right. So trying to get, you know, a a programmable thermostat to um, turn it a little bit down at night can help. Can help. That also saves energy. Definitely. That's another thing. So it helps your wallet a little bit. Um, This topic to me is taking on a life of its own, which I'm really glad about because there's so much to talk about with sleep. And I, I don't want to let the time go away without talking about one of the biggest things that you diagnose and you look at, which is sleep apnea. So I want to talk a little bit about what sleep apnea is and what you look for when you do a sleep study, what the sleep study is and how we treat it. Right. So So most sleep hospital centers see a lot of sleep apnea patients. Uh, Sleep apnea is something that has been described for hundreds of years. Charles Dickens is credited for the first description of sleep apnea in the Pickwick Papers. But sleep apnea is about not breathing correctly at night. Most patients, when you talk about sleep apnea, have obstructive sleep apnea, which is a mechanical problem where the muscle in the upper airway does not stay open. And like a musical instrument, when it relaxes a little bit when we go to sleep, if it relaxes enough to cause the air that's going through your airway to be less smooth flowing, it starts to get turbulent and starts to create sound. And that's snoring. Snoring is sometimes sourced in the throat and sometimes because of nasal congestion or big tonsils or something like that and is not always sleep apnea. Only about a third of people who snore actually stop breathing. The problem is, is that most people who stop breathing do not know this. And it is because you're asleep. And when you stop breathing, it's because the airway closes enough that there's not enough oxygen and carbon dioxide going in and out of your lungs, that the airway narrows and it's limited. And the brain has really good 
safety mechanisms to prevent your oxygen from continuing to go down and actually wakes you up. And when you wake up, the airway pops open. You often have that horrible sound of (laughs) or something like (laughs) that, you know, something to that effect. And it can. But it doesn't remedy the problem for more than a few seconds, and then you can go right back into it. Right back into it. Very often, uh, it's either a spouse or a physician or medical provider who considers sleep apnea to be a problem, and that would... That's what brings the patient to That's what brings the patient. So right. patients, so a spouse, you're saying, because they notice that their spouse is snoring, but they notice the pattern of the snore may be much different than a general snore. Correct. We say anybody who snores and has something else should at least think about it. Either go to their primary doctor or think about a sleep What do you study. mean something else? So something else would be unusual sleepiness, having struggling at work after lunch without having to walk around or take a cup of coffee or can't read something on the computer. Uh, Sleepiness while driving for any reason should Mm. be evaluated as soon as possible for safety reasons. Especially our truck drivers. and mm. Correct, but anybody. Uh, Blood pressure that's difficult to control or blood pressure at an early age, heart disease at an early age. Heart palpitations or arrhythmias that aren't explained by another reason can also be uh, associated with breathing problems during sleep. It's actually part of the American Heart Association guidelines now that a patient under 40 who has high blood pressure or a patient who is not controlled with two medicines, we should at least be asking the question, should they be evaluated for sleep sleep apnea? apnea. And that's because when you stop breathing, you have an adrenaline surge while you're sleeping. And so you might have normal blood pressure on your medication during the day, but during the night, your blood pressure is actually elevated and you're not getting the rest you need. You're exercising without the benefit. Your your heart's racing without any improvement. So, So for an individual whose spouse doesn't, or right. maybe someone that's not married. Right. They don't know that they're snoring or their snoring is an irregular type of a snore. What would lead the person to their physician and how would the physician say, question well, again, them to bring Types of symptoms. Uh, it is weight related. Okay. And that most people, 85 to 90 percent of people with sleep apnea are overweight, uh, usually with a body mass index of greater than 32. Okay. Uh, although 28 increases the risk. A big neck size, so 17 inches for men, 16 inches for women increases the risk. Mm. Type 2 diabetes increases the risk. A family history increases the risk and all the other medical things that we Mm. talked about. So they can be evaluated for that. Sometimes sleep apnea requires a sleep study to to understand what's going on because we really can't tell the difference between the snoring and the The stopping breathing. And we want to make sure we're treating the right thing. The good news about a sleep study is that we're not doing anything to the patient that has any harm to them. We're monitoring you, but we're not giving you any radiation or giving you any medication during a sleep test. People often don't want to do a sleep test because they feel that it's... Weird or annoying, or they don't think they can sleep in a strange place. But in fact, the sleep center is like a small hotel room. It <laughs> is a real bed with a real mattress. It has a little TV so that you can watch it before you go to sleep, obviously, just like we <laughs> talked about, not after. It is nobody's. In the room with you, there is a, for safety reasons and for monitoring reasons, because sometimes people do unusual things during the night, there is an infrared camera that's recording you. uh, And there are a lot of uh, monitors because we do have to detect when you're asleep and when you're awake. And the only way to do that is through brain waves. Mm. We also have some breathing monitors and some heart rate monitors so we can correlate a lot of things during a sleep test. There are sleep tests that are available that we do as well at St. Mary's, which are monitoring tests in the home, which are effective, although they are much less complete. We do them when 
the only sleep question that we're asking for the patient is, do you have sleep apnea or not? Because it's only a diagnostic test, and it can't tell us how much sleep you get. It can't tell us anything about your heart rate. It can't tell us if you do other things during the night. And it's not indicated for children or for people who have complex medical problems. Because you do do sleep studies on children. Correct. But do you like to do those monitoring on on site? Right now, the reason why we do children only in the sleep center is because the day-to-day variability of the home tests is much higher. And since children have much more subtle changes, when children stop breathing, their oxygen level doesn't go way down. Mm. Like in adults, when children stop breathing, it's much more subtle and shorter than in adults, which is good because it's much less dangerous for children. The reason why we might test a child for sleep apnea is for learning or behavioral problems as much as just snoring. So most children who are normal weight have sleep apnea because their adenoids or their tonsils, tonsils are, big. are big. And it's important to know this because we don't want to just take out tonsils for no reason. It is a surgery right. and it does have complications. But not sleeping correctly in a child can affect their hearing, it can affect their learning, it can affect their memory, it can affect their school performance, and it also can make them much more difficult from a behavioral standpoint. We know that when you sleep deprive a child enough, they can get symptoms that are like ADD. When I don't get the sleep that I need, I get cranky. Right. I don't listen. I get a little disinhibited. You can't absorb all the things, everything. All right. the things that children do with right. ADD. Right. And so it's important not to say, it's important that a, children with behavioral problems get the as perfect a sleep as they can because of all the other special needs that they might right. have. When you do a sleep study on someone, what are you looking for? So what what is, you know, you're, you're doing all this monitoring. What are you actually looking for? So when we get a sleep study, it takes us a while to interpret because we get about a large screen worth of computer data for every 30 seconds that right. you're... Um, you're you're being monitored. So it takes a while because the computer algorithms to really process this are not good enough to be perfect and sort of do automatic. So we have to really look at everything manually. So it gives us both a close and a far away snapshot of your sleep. So we actually get this little graphical pattern of your sleep, almost like a a satellite view of the sleep pattern, how your sleep stages interact with each other, what sort of the peaks and valleys of your sleep look like. People with wearable devices have sort of these things, but this right. is an actual monitor. Right. Right. Um, we see, do you stop breathing or not? Do you snore or not? What positions do you sleep in? Do you have leg movement issues during sleep? Do you have a heart rate imbalances during sleep? Do you do unusual things like act out your dreams or talk or walk during your sleep? Do you have problems with brain function like seizures or changes in brainwaves? So there's a lot of information that we do get from it. And it could diagnose many other things that are causing the sleep apnea. That's correct. Many more metabolic things. That's correct. Than just what you described as being too sleep apnea. It's not always the perfect first test for someone whose main problem is insomnia. Right. But it's because of some of the limitations of the sleep test, but it's good for a lot of other things. It's so it's so incredible. That's so interesting. It's so interesting. So when you diagnose someone, I know we only have 10 minutes left. I can't believe it, but that's okay. I really, really want to stay on this a bit. When you diagnose someone with sleep apnea, then what is your next step for that person? So we look at really two things when it's sleep apnea. We look at how it's affecting them and what the risk to them is of what level of treatment. Right. So some people are really impaired during the day, that they're falling asleep during the day, their work performance is not good, their behavior is changed, their um, driving is impaired. In those people, we want to treat as aggressively as possible. On the other side, if someone has either severe sleep apnea or their sleep apnea is enough that 
It could be affecting their heart, have a history of heart disease or high blood pressure or recent stroke or TIA or arrhythmia or something like that, then we want to treat aggressively as well. If it's less of those things, then we try to do lifestyle changes first. Like every other doctor who's who's going to be on here in Medically Speaking, it's exercise more and <laughs> exercise, eat less. Yeah. <laughs> but but seriously, that's that's part of it because, because sleep apnea is weight-related, and sometimes a small reduction in weight, especially for mild sleep apnea, can right. make a difference. There are oral appliances that work for mild to moderate sleep apnea that are made by specialized dentists that can actually improve the breathing. Um, the ones that you can sort of get on the internet are not recommended because of no follow-up and right. not adjustable. Should be clinically prescribed Correct. and fitted. Correct. And there are some surgeries in mostly in children, but occasionally in adults that can do this. There are some experimental surgeries for patients who have failed all other therapies, including breathing machines that are are available in places, but they're very specialized and are not really the first-line treatment for people right now. They're promising for people who failed other therapies, but they're not quite ready for everybody yet. So what people have heard about is breathing machines, which I've talked about, which is people have said breathing machines. They've said CPAP, BiPAP, APAP, VPAP. (laughs) The, the, The nomenclature is all nonsense. What is important is that it's using a little bit of air pressure to not let that muscle in the back of the throat close. So you breathe while you're sleeping the same way that you breathe during the day. With an airway open, with no snoring, and the machines today are much more comfortable than they were even five or ten years ago. They are, in many respects, self-adjustable to the patient. They actually can respond to how much the patient's airway close. Right. They have great humidification in there so that the dry mouth... is eliminated in most of these patients and can be seasonally adjusted from summer to winter, which is nice. And they give us feedback data so that as a doctor, I can tell not only how much you're using it, which is important, but more importantly is why it's working and not working. Are you set at the right level? Do we need to make adjustments? And the, the new models of both the current main machines made by manufacturers now have data that you can get. So you have your smartphone or your tablet or your computer. You just go to their website and put in the serial number of your machine so nobody else can see it. They don't know what's written on the back of your machine. Right. And you can actually see how you're doing. They wow. give you a score. Wow. So they say, how was, your, how was your sleep last night in the machine? They give you an 85 or a 92 or a 71 and so to that, try to help people. And that's actually been proven in medical studies to help people get adjusted to CPAP. That's awesome. Which I mean, that's helpful to you because machine. when they come back to you, you guys have a great yeah. di- you know, dialogue so yeah. that you can find out what's working for your patient. And I'm sure that the patients that are using these, they can't believe how much better they feel just based on the fact they're actually getting a good night's sleep. Right. They didn't even realize they weren't getting... That's that's right. About 80% of people who are prescribed breathing machines really can use them long-term. We don't want people to use them long-term. We want them to get the weight down or do something else eventually. But sometimes either people have medical problems that prevent them from doing that or they like it so much. I've had people who... Uh, now go on cruises and trips when they never could before because they had to share a a bedroom with somebody else. Right, right, right. I've had people, um, you know, really just be, they say they're addicted to their machines. Yeah, because they feel so much better. Right, they feel so much better. They feel so much better. So you know what you've done here. You've you've opened up the opportunity for you to come back because there's so much more to talk about. So I need to bring you back. But what I want to make sure that we talk about in the last few minutes that we have is to talk about the new sleep um, lab that we are creating at St. Mary's and this lovely space that used not not saying anything it used to be my office, but that's okay, Doc. I gave up my my that little means it has really world. good karma. Has good karma. I, I I left it all for you. We left it all for you. So it's right next to your office. It's a perfect spot. And how many beds are we going to have in there? Well, we're going to have for the whole center. So we're we're going to have. F- at least four and, and possibly six beds. We're wow. working that out for the 
for the with the hospital. Uh, we have st- we're going to maintain the offsite location in Walkit, perfect, and it's going to be nicely decorated and soundproof and state of the art, state of the art with uh, new equipment and great technologists that we have. We've been accredited for now over ten years, part of the. American Association of Sleep Medicine's accreditation, so we're fully accredited as That's a awesome. as a lab and when's the antici- home sleep center. When's the anticipation of the new center opening? It should be in the next few weeks. We're oh, still working great. working that out. We have to get the new equipment and we'll definitely have a grand opening so i'll make sure that everybody knows i'll I'll bring it back to my my show make sure everybody knows that it's open we'll take some pictures we'll put them on our website we'll put them in facebook so i encourage everybody to follow us there and check it out so the new sleep lab will be at 133 scoville street um scoville street um suite 104 sorry about that uh dr kolodner is in that suite and you want to give your phone number doc sure it's 203-709-4504 you can also find us at stmh.org on the web. Yep, definitely so. click on um, the specialty sleep under Franklin Medical Group, which is on stmh.org. You can see Dr. Kladner's picture, all the office information, and it'll show us the different sleep labs that we have in different locations. But it's definitely something that's much needed in our community, and you've been doing it for such a long time with such a great, great job. So we thank you. I've been here at St. Mary's. This is my 12th year. Your 12th year. And going strong and making us grow by leaps and bounds. Dr. Kladner is also going to be at our upcoming program, Fight Fatigue, which is one of our Spirit of Women programs. Fight Fatigue is going to be Thursday, September 15th. It's going to be at La Bella Vista at uh, the Ponte Club in Waterbury. And it is going to fight fatigue, believe it or not, has to do with perimenopause. So we have a whole panel of physicians. And Dr. Kladner is going to be on there talking about sleep deprivation for our perimenopausal women. So that's just a little teaser. We're not gonna we're gonna let the audience come that night so they can hear more about it the only thing i can say is that every program that robin has hosted people are banging on the doors to get in so <laughs> make banging sure on the doors if you are coming to the program that you get there early and they are, sign up the way you're supposed to i, I they are the definitely that, they are definitely banging on the doors and just so everybody knows so this program we have uh, dr kolodner for pulmonary we also have dr uh, mark albini who is a OBGYN here at naugatuck valley woman's health specialist he is going to be our moderator we have dr ian cohen and his partner dr megan slemons who are OBGYNs for associated women's health we have dr anna freitag who's an endocrinologist with the Franklin uh, Medical Group, and we're going to have a whole Who table. Was also in residency with me. We she were was in, in residency. We were in the same residency awesome. class. It in is going to be a great panel of physicians talking about um, perimenopausal symptoms, and it's a free program. And please go on stmh.org, click on uh, fight fatigue. It's right on our homepage, and you can also call Catherine Walker two zero three seven zero nine three three. One two uh, to register, but highly recommend you do it soon because we are filling up. So, Doc, again, thank you so much for joining us. You can follow our program on iTunes under Medically Speaking on our podcast. Thank you so much, Robin Sills. I'll see you again in two weeks. Fistful. Thanks for joining us. Fistful.